This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey, thanks for joining us for church today. We're going to return to our study in the Bible, the most important book ever given to human beings to know the mind and will of God. We're going to look at the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison, shackled to the wall under constant supervision and in total isolation. But from that spot, in really dire circumstances, he gives us a word that's really appropriate for us today. And it's going to be a life-changing word from God to us that we're going to finish remembering the Lord's death for us at the table of communion. So get your Bible, get ready. We're going to open it up and listen to what God has to say. If you remember, this series is called Redeeming the Disruption. Uh, Paul was experiencing a disruption in his own life, being imprisoned, uh, quarantined, so to speak, away from comforts and family and friends. And uh, we're learning a lot of how he encourages the church in Philippi to live in challenging days, like the challenging days that we're in today. One of the the biggest threats um, in challenge to a community can be keeping the unity. It's such an easy uh, step away from unity to causing disunity, fractions, um, arguments um, in the midst of hardships. Uh, We see that in our culture today, in our community. Um, Instead of people coming together at times to face a threat or a challenge, it actually turns into a blame game. And if you look at our politics today, um, in in history, oftentimes political parties have come together to face challenges. Today, it seems a bit different. It seems as though political parties are trying to blame each other for who's more responsible for the current crisis that we're in, who has the best ideas, who has the worst ideas. And that's kind of from the tip of the arrow all the way down. And there's uh, this opportunity for us to show the world where it looks like to have unity in the midst of these challenging days. I look in our own community, trying to figure out there's a diversity of, of even laws that are in effect right now. Of do we listen to our city officials, our mayors, our governors? Do we listen to our governors, our senators? Uh, we live uh, in Weld County here uh, in Erie, but the township of Erie actually sits in Weld County and Boulder County. And Boulder County has said, you know, there's going to be certain restrictions till May 8th. And Weld County has said, we're going to actually start opening uh, up for business. And so our community is, is split right now on which rules they have to follow. So I think the words that Paul has for us today about keeping the unity, the strength of u- unity in the midst of diversity and challenges is really good. So if you've got your Bibles, open it up. And we're going to look at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 27. This is talking to the Christians of those who are in Christ in how to live in these days. And Paul says this, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So this unity is going to be actually a sign to people of our salvation, of our uniqueness in Christ. He opens up chapter 2, verse 1, by saying, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So just in a few verses, he, te- he speaks about the unity of mind, unity of spirit, unity of standing, unity of striving, the unity that we have in the community, the church, uh, where Jesus Christ is the head of. So oftentimes people will look at this and say, okay, well, let's just pull it all apart. Let's look at all the different types of ways that he says that we should be one. But that's not the emphasis that Paul's making. Paul's not saying be one in standing, one in striving, one in spirit, one in mind, so that you can find all the different ways that we're one. He's using it as a a repetition so that we would see the weight of our unity, that it'd be like a hammer, that he would drive home apart apart for us to know this, this point that he's making, that unity is essential for the church. And unity is important because, as we know, the church is the most diverse group of people on the planet. And so how is it that we keep this unity? Because it's so important that we do. It actually reflects to the world our gospel witness is true and is right. The the unity is what Jesus prayed for right before he left earth. I, I pray that they may be one as you, Father, and I are one. So unity was really important to Jesus. It's really important to Paul. And because the church is comprised of so many different people from every walk of life, every ethnic group, every background, um, the whole idea of a diverse group of people becoming united is a really challenging idea. What's Paul getting at? How does this unity, uh, Thomas, actually come to reality? It's a good question because when he speaks about the unity, he's not speaking about this group of people becoming homogenous. Not like our sports clubs that we all think the same way. We think about the same things the same way. He's talking about the framework. He's not telling you what to think. He's telling you how to think. Similar to last week, how you get this, this great picture of the lens in which we look through is through the scriptures, through Christ in all of our circumstances. That's what Paul's saying is that we want to have the same mind. We want to have the same lens of how do we think about our lives? How do we think about the ways in which we live, the ways in which we participate um, in this gospel community being the same? Not that we have to think exactly the same way, have the same preferences, have the same appetites, have the same uh, hobbies, but that Christ's lens, the framework of Jesus Christ is actually the way that we're staying in unity. And it is really hard when you think about diversity, how often diversity just divulges into all these fractions. Uh, There is a key ingredient that Paul gives here for the sake of unity. And we can pick it up here in verse three of chapter two. Because unity is so challenging, Paul gives us this key ingredient of how we stay one. He says in verse three, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This word count is the word consider, so that you would consider others' interests. You would consider other people's needs more significant than your own. It's the ability of of seeing someone in diversity saying, okay, what they need what, they, what they're interested in now becomes what I'm interested in. Their needs become my top priority of meeting their needs. And that's how we keep part of this unity. Yeah. So one of the things that's happening in our current crisis is we're getting to see some snapshots, some pictures of um, maybe people not taking interest in others. Uh, you go to the grocery store and you see a big cart going by, uh, 
there goes all the toilet paper. It's all gone. Where is all the toilet paper? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm taking care of my own interests. <laughs> and uh, you, you see, actually, the default position, perhaps, of hoarding and trying to take care of your own. And uh, that's not at all what is in view here, is it? It's not at all. It's actually being able to say, okay, what are other people's needs and interests and elevating them as you would serve them. You would see them, consider them, count them as more significant than your own. I was talking to several people uh, this last week and their experiences of trying to get the necessary resources for the family. And one of the families I was talking to was John and Lindsay Boyle. And Lindsay was saying that she was in the store and there was a, a a lack of uh, meat in the meat department. And she was talking to the butcher about, hey, is there any other cuts of beef back there? And he came out with two more cuts. I mean, there was one sitting out there and he brought out two more. And he said, these are the last two that I have. Would you like one of these or both of these? And she actually responded and said, you know, actually we're okay right now. Why don't you go ahead and hold on to those for the next person? And John was telling me that the butcher's response was just amazing, that he was almost brought to tears saying, I can't believe that you would not take both these cuts. I mean, you have no idea how people are taking more than they possibly can possibly eat, um, but you would allow the next person to have these cuts of meat. Why would you do something like that? I think is in his mind. What motivates you to allow someone, someone else to have these cuts of meat? Yeah, it's a good story. So you hear what the... Um, ethical implication is that Paul is saying, do not be interested only in your own ideas, interests, preferences, but also in the interests of others. So I want to just stop for a moment, and I'm, I want to speak to you in your home and think about whose interests need to be considered at home right now. Um, one of the things that I've received, I know you have too, is we've received a number of emails from teenagers in the last seven weeks. And um, so I want to take a minute and talk to every person who's listening to me right now between the ages of, let's say, 12 and 18. And I just want to ask you a question and think, did you hear these words, uh, make my joy complete, do nothing from selfish ambition, um, but in humility, count as more significant, the preferences of others more than yourself. So if I could lean in to every teenager in the room, could you answer the question, who are the other people in my house right now whose interests this passage tells me I should think about for a second? Um, I'll give you an answer. It probably is your brother or your sister. And I know it might not be your default position, your natural response, but do you know your mom and dad are probably in some new territory themselves? And I just want to call every young person listening to me this morning that here's a passage that you could apply in your own home for your family system as you think about your mom or your dad and how can I consider them as more important than myself. Um, it applies to adults and kids, right? It does. I think about this. If you're wondering, you know, how well have you taken this text and embodied it? Here would be your question I would ask. For kids or for adults, who is the most significant person in your life? Uh, for someone who's married, it might be your spouse. Uh, for for kids, yeah, hopefully it's your spouse. Uh, but who is the most significant person in your life? And then let me ask you this. What is their most significant need and interest right now? 
Can you identify the most significant interest or need of the most significant person in your life? That's a good barometer of how well we live to the interests of others. Can we even do it for the most significant people in our life? And remember, this key ingredient of considering others as more important than your own is for the sake of unity, is that we don't put our needs above the others and so that we're able to stay as one. And this is for the health of the church. Remember, the church is young in these days and is rather vulnerable. And so the unity of the church is essential for the success and the the strength of the church. Uh, I was thinking about Michael Watkins this week. He was talking to all these different guys as we were getting ready for the men's advance, trying to recruit guys to come up to the mountains. And one thing that Michael had shared with the men that's not unique to men, I think it's for men and women, is that I think it's the enemy's strategy, he said, to get a man or a woman outside the herd all alone where the enemy can really work them over when they're outside the unity or the community of believers. Yeah. It's like developing a different kind of herd immunity. If you're in the herd, if you stay with the herd, you're stronger. And um, you have to develop that unity of uh, the Christian experience. We said this last week, and we'll say it all the time, but the Christian experience is not meant to be lived in isolation. It's not meant to be lived alone. And so we've been forced into this scenario right now of being somewhat isolated, but I'm so thankful for the ways that you're reaching out to people and making connections. It's really crucial, and this is where Paul's driving. Uh, Pursue the unity by being humble and seeking the interests of others. I know Tom and I have both been really encouraged this week as texts have come in, emails have come in, And one of the things you're asking is, what are the needs of the church? What are the needs of other families, young families? Are there people who have been furloughed or have lost a job? And how can I come alongside them? How can I help in this time of need? We saw that even in our our, uh, Calvary check-in survey this week, didn't we? Yeah, the check-in survey, one of the uh, leading responses was, I'm looking for a place to serve. People at Calvary who filled out the check-in really wanted to reply that what I need most right now is a place to serve. And I love hearing that. It's just a great heartbeat of our church. And yesterday at the food drive in Boulder, eight churches collectively came together to bring food and deliver it to the needs of Boulder. And I just love the heart of thinking of others as more important than ourselves. It's a huge call. It is the way we demonstrate who we are in Jesus. And Paul just said, because you've experienced the life of Christ, make my joy complete by being this kind of people. It's a high call. It is a high call, and we know it's not easy. In fact, if I'm honest with myself, I think this is actually an impossible task. How do I live this out thinking of the needs and interests of others more than my own? Because I feel like my needs and my interests are are real needs and real interests. And so, Tom, where does Paul take us to start looking, fixing our eyes on how do we live this high call out? Yeah, right. Okay, so if you've been listening and you hear this ethical call to say, don't think about yourself so much, think about others, you say, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I, I like my needs most. But Paul's point is, you have a model. You have a model, and the model begins in verse 5 and goes through verse 8 And it just says, here's the example to look to. So verse 5 says, have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He had this mindset. 
And then Paul begins an explanation of one of the richest theological sections in all the Bible. In fact, last week when we were talking about uh, the question that came in, what makes Christ so compelling? If you want three verses that unpack the compelling nature of Jesus Christ, which then becomes the platform from which you can live a distinctively beautiful life thinking of others and loving them, you have to look carefully at verses 6 through 8. So let me read that for us. Verse 6. Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. These verses explain really the example. Who does this? Who, who thinks of others? No one better than Jesus. And then he explains how it happened. Verse 6 says, although he existed in the form of God. I want you to just think about what Paul is saying, that Jesus Christ existed in the very essence of God. The word in Greek for form is morphe, which means um, the outward appearance of an inward reality. It, what is innately true of Jesus, he was in the form of God. He was God, a very God, in the beginning. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word was God. Um, Although he existed in the very form of God, he did not count, that's the same word that was used earlier for us, he didn't reckon that his being God, being equal with God, something that he had to grasp or hold on to in order for it to be true. Now, I don't have to cling to it in order for it to be true because it is my essence. And so he didn't grasp it. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. These terms are loaded, but he was in the form of God and being equal with God was not something that he had to hold on to in order for it to always remain true of him. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. In other words, by adding something to what he is and was, it was the way he emptied himself. Okay, so this, this picture that Paul points us to is the perfect example of how we live this out. It, it robs us of our entitlements that we hold on to. It's rather a great mystery. Um, one of the analogies that you have used with me over the years to help explain this to people is that of a three-legged race. Yeah. How, how does that help us understand that God is, or Jesus is fully God and fully man, his emptying by taking? Right. So you'll see in that verse, he emptied himself by taking. So it's an emptying in a sense by addition, he empties himself by adding humanity, human likeness 
to himself. The analogy, and no analogy is perfect, but um, the fastest man in the world is Usain Bolt. And Usain Bolt is probably, um, there's no one like him. He, in the Olympics in 2008 and 2012 and 2016, he was the Olympian champion in the 100 and 200 meter sprint. Um, fastest man in the world, indisputably. But if we went to the Boulder County Fair and entered a three-legged race and you became Hussein's partner in yeah. the three-legged race, imagine that. So you have Hussein and Thomas together in a three-legged race and then next to them, the second and third fastest runners in the world were linked in the three-legged race. I would put my money on these guys to finish really you yeah i think he would carry your butt across the line <laughs> but but you you get the idea if usain bolt had to run with you attached to him you wouldn't be able to see the full display of his incredible talent as a sprinter it would in a sense be limited by the addition of you Hold on. Are, are you saying that I am a limiting factor to a relationship? Oh, no, no, not, not to a relationship. I mean, I wouldn't say that. That would, that would help make sense of a lot of things that my wife has told me. <laughs> no, 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 no. We love you <laughs> just as you are. But you're not as fast as Usain Bolt. His, his skills are veiled in a sense. In some similar way, when Jesus came to become a human being, the Bible says that he emptied himself by taking human likeness, and it was, in a sense, a way of limiting the full display of all of his divine attributes, his prerogatives of being everywhere present and being on display in all of his glory were limited. In fact, if you look at John chapter 17, one of the things that, in particular, was veiled for Jesus when he became a human being is his glory. Imagine that he existed in the form of God for all of eternity, but then he became human, and in his incarnation to become a human being, all of the divine glory that was his in eternity is not seen in the same way. So when he's preparing to go to the cross, he prays a prayer to his father, and this is what he says. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world ever existed. And God's going to restore Jesus after the cross to the glory that he always had, but that glory was not on display for most of his life. We saw it in Matthew chapter 17 in the transfiguration but the full expression of who Jesus truly is is veiled while he's a human being. Not only his glory, but his riches too. And one of the verses that help us, you, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. A, a word from Paul talking about the great move of Jesus from heaven to earth. So if you pick up our text again, 
Um, yeah, he took upon himself the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By the way, that's the same word we found above in verse 3 where we're called in humility to think of others as more important than ourselves. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me see if I can illustrate it with my hand. Jesus Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took upon himself the likeness of human nature. And he humbled himself to become obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the, the descent of Jesus from the glory of heaven all the way to the cross, think about what he did on the cross. He, Jesus, for all of eternity, was worshipped by angels and he enjoyed the glories of the presence of his father and he went to the cross and he was rejected by men he was scorned he was spit upon he was beaten he was pierced he was crucified and rejected and he did all of that thinking not of his own interests but ours it is an amazing pattern an example, and it's with that in Paul's mind that he says, have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ. And when he's thinking of our interests, he's thinking of our greatest needs. Mm. It is that descent in his obedience to the cross that redeems for him a people back into right relationship, fellowship with the Father. So what, what, let's go back full circle here. It is the work of Jesus Christ from his position from heaven to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins that brings us who are out of right relationship with our Father back into unity. So the reason that we have unity with the Father, that we have unity with one another, a fellowship in the church, in the body of Christ, is because of what Christ was willing to do on our behalf on the cross and it's this mindset that is ours in Christ Jesus. When we say it is an impossible task to love people this way, it is. You do not have the ability to love your spouse, your parent, your neighbor this way on your own strength. You have to experience first the forgiveness of Christ, the redemption of Christ to be brought in, to be the filling of his spirit. So that out of these things, this is why Paul says, if you've had any encouragement, comfort, any participation, it's not if, it's you know that you have. Yeah. And so now that you have tasted these things, the works and accomplishments of Christ, now live out of them, putting the needs and, other of, and interests of others ahead of your own for the sake of the unity, for the sake of the gospel, that the world would know who Christ is. Amen. And that's particularly true for those of us who love Christ already. But could I talk to you for a minute if you have heard what I just said and maybe you have never come to know Jesus yet. You've never realized the extent of his love for you to come all the way to earth, all the way to the cross, and there to die on a cross to bear our sins. Could I invite you today? I want to encourage you. This would be a beautiful day for you to say to Jesus, 
Lord Jesus, I understand a little more fully what you did for me and I ask you to come into my life and I welcome you to be my savior and to receive you for the forgiveness of my sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I encourage you to welcome Christ into your heart. And all of us want to take these moments together because in just a couple moments we're going to move to communion and we're going to eat this bread and drink this cup. And what we pray will be in our mind is what we've just thought about with regard to Jesus. What he did to save us is amazing. It is the epitome of the humiliation of the one who should be the most exalted, who came to the lowest place to bring us to God. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So we get ready to go to communion. Uh, we're going to pause here, and maybe you need to prepare your elements to take the bread and have the cup, but we should all just pray silently and thank Jesus for what he's done, and uh, then we'll take the bread and the cup together. And our prayer is that God would lead us to have the mind of Christ with all those who are around us in closest proximity and to the whole world until all the world knows what God said of Jesus. He gave him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, everyone should bow. Let's pray together.